Hi, everybody. How's it going today? I have my lovely co-hosts Larry Cornett and Trip O'Dell here with me. How are you guys? We're good. We're good. Oh, oh really? We feel, like, wow. we feel like we haven't I, seen you is, forever. Is somebody like it's, it's tired? Been at least a few hours. Right? <laughs> <laughs> see, well, I, I waited. I waited to see if Larry said anything because I'm always the one that jumps right in so i was i was seeing if our you resident so, introvert was going to say something you look so professional i want to say trip with you standing there in your new desk and having your headphones on you just look fabulous well I, i'm not living out of a suitcase anymore yeah uh, look you at know, you so it's nice <laughs> we've got a guest with us today and yes. why, why don't you tell us a little bit about who's with us today yeah uh we have geshi karuri sabina uh from south africa and this has been a long time coming. Uh, we're actually recording quite late our time so that we can have uh, a great conversation with her today. She works with Singularity U South Africa faculty. She has a focus on urban futures um, that includes uh, smart cities, networks, urban planning, governance and development, as well as innovation systems. She has a master in architecture and urban design plus urban planning and a PhD in planning and innovation studies. So uh, thank you so much, Geshi, for coming on to the show today to talk about the future of cities. Thanks, Anna. It's my favorite thing to talk about. So, <laughs> so I'm glad to be here. <laughs> So to uh, I want to jump in because um, one of the videos that we all watched, which uh, which was fabulous about kind of the uh, the way f- future of cities is going. And this video, I think, was recorded maybe two years ago or last year. Uh, so obviously we weren't faced with a pandemic at the time. Um, I think you in, in the stats, it said something like we're going to experience, you know, 8.6 billion uh, new people in 2030. And, and you kind of touched on like why our current system of cities is broken and it's no longer uh, as useful as it can be. Can you explain a little bit more about why or how cities were first built or a little bit of the history behind cities to give a bit of context to the audience? Thank you for asking me that. I never think people want to know the history of anything. But uh, <laughs> but I think it's really important when it comes to cities, because for many of us, like myself, you know, I was born in a big city. I've always lived in big cities. We behave as though they're God-given phenomena, right? As opposed to very purpose-built places that, in fact, aren't very old. Uh, and I live in Johannesburg, for example. I have to remind people sometimes this place is like 120 years old. It's really not that old. It wasn't always here. Um, and if you think about way, way back when, how any kinds of human settlements formed, it was really around need and purpose, right? So you get together because, first of all, you need to be protected from whether, you know, whatever, the monsters or from the elements. Uh, and so the location becomes important. Resources are important. It was always around water. It was always around this understanding that we need food, we need energy. And so those things, you know, are important. Um, it was always around, about people. So community mattered. I mean, that's exactly what a settlement means. It's not about things. It's, it's about, you know, who's here? Are we safe? You know, how, what are we doing? So the we becomes important. And so you can layer all of those things. Of course, over time, bigger phenomena began to determine um, where cities were built. And so the bigger phenomena are uh, bigger energy uses, bigger industri- industrial change, uh, um, a capital, the role of banks and money and moneyed people and, and what they want to do. Um, uh, the car, the car became this monster. The car began to plan the city and the city got planned around the car suddenly. So the kind of logics in a way began to break down. But, you know, that's okay. Maybe that's about the time, right? So 
uh, you know, perhaps, you know, if you're going from horses, everybody wants a car. Um, but at some stage, one has to ask, is the city still serving the purpose of security for everyone, of shelter for everyone, of survival for everybody? And we've gotten to the state where they're not. Many of our cities are becoming highly polluted, incredibly unhealthy, unhealthy physically, unhealthy mentally. Um, and we've behaved as though they, well, they're just what they are. And we have to figure out how we adapt to these places. Uh, and that's been one of my arguments about why they were incredibly unsustainable on the tra- trajectory we were. And nobody wants to call a pandemic a good thing. But, you know, if that's what it takes to wake us up to the possibility of something different. Then maybe that's one little tiny good thing that uh, we can we can focus on. I mean, we've seen in within a matter of months how pollution completely cleaned up uh, when when the use of people stopped, you know, interacting with the cities. Are you um, when you think about the future of cities, is this something that uh, is a possibility where people can interact in their city without producing that much pollution? Yeah. And, you know, one of the things that I've been looking at lately, I'm going to answer your question in a bit of an indirect way. Um, One of the things I've been looking at lately and looking at innovations and behaviors that have changed due to COVID is asking the question, to what extent are these systemic changes or are they just transient, meaning that as soon as people come back, it's going to be just as bad as it was. Uh, And I was with my kids the other day driving in my car. So there we go to a snapback. Um, and uh, we look out the window, this woman opens a bottle of something and just throws the cap <laughs> to the ground. And begins. So my kids, because of the generation they're from, were shocked. They were like, what the hell is that woman doing? Um, so I know this behavior, but, you know, there's an example of, well, I guess it didn't take long for people to go back to right. <laughs> just, you know, literally. Yeah. So yeah. I don't know the answer to that question. <laughs> you know, it's, it's funny, um, you know, you talk about the physical, the, the physical sort of shaping where you know, the oldest cities, like places like Baghdad, are between the Tigris and Euphrates River. It was in the Fertile Crescent. Uh, and that was because it had great agriculture and great transportation. And it was really the most efficient way for supply chains to move around. And if you've lived in a modern city, uh, I, was, I was in the New York City area when sorry, Hurricane Sandy hit. Uh, and the power went out. I was in Jersey. The power went out. Train lines went down. And the power was out for weeks, days on end, and you can't pump gasoline out of the, out of the ground when the electricity's out. The store shelves started emptying. Uh, you know, major, I've heard that major cities, and I, I work in logistics now, uh, delivery logistics, in major cities, um, they're only a few days away from the food supply running out. You know, refrigeration and everything else, like th- th- there, there's less concentration of that because of the supply chains. And we've seen that with COVID as well, things getting backed up in ports and distribution centers and short and, and stores being empty. So post-COVID, where do you see like innovation or where, where do you see like the impact of supply chain changing the shape of how cities evolve or where people are migrating to? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So look, you know, I always like to say when it comes to the future, you know, yeah, I don't know, who knows, but... <laughs> But um, I think you're absolutely right. You know, we've spent so many years, you know, in the innovation study space, for example, the big argument was, you know, more vertical, you know, integration of supply chains and more global, you know. And I, I think we're coming to understand that, hey, guys, it's not one or the other. If you're not resilient if you're completely embedded into some, you know, value chain that, you know, goes from here to beyond China and you're completely dependent on that. Like, that's the only way you can get whatever resource that you need. So I think, and I think it's actually probably a good thing, 
that uh, I've always been very focused on the hyper-local being important. So you hear me talk about settlements. It means I feel the local is very important. Uh, I'm not a protectionist, you know, from a sort of a, a market, you know, sort of an economic perspective. In fact, I, I don't sometimes think very much about that, if I'm honest. But um, I, I think that we'll begin to appreciate uh, that, that, that resilience, this word we use so loosely and sustainability, comes from really being able to understand and appreciate from the hyper-local up, not from the up, not from, you know, not from the big vertical, you know, corporate value chain that, that, that some industry thinks is a good idea. You've really got to be able to be much more resilient and, and be able to cope. Uh, so now what do I mean by that? Do I mean we no longer need oil or we no longer need products that come from elsewhere? No, absolutely not. But I just think that if you can't feed yourself, um, you know, if you're only, uh, and, and in our context, it's a very real thing, by the way, because for a long time, our government has argued that people should grow food. We can, we have the space for it. And many people don't, right? Because we've begun to believe food comes from the grocery store. And that's a fairly recent phenomenon in a place where everybody, my mother, my mother is, a, she's a bit of a nightmare sometimes, actually. She grows everything. She has a full-on farm in her very urban, <laughs> you know, it's a bit embarrassing to us, but, but, you know, it's extremely sensible. You know, if, if the whole grid went off, my mother would be just fine, probably for a couple of years <laughs> because she has everything. And I mean everything. Now, I'm not saying that that's really um, possible for urban dwelling everywhere. It's certainly not possible for New York. Uh, but I'm just saying that thinking, that understanding that actually we're in a place and we've got to think about what do we need to, what's sensible for us to be able to do here and how do we adapt to change? And if it's a rapid change and we're seeing so many of them, I mean, so COVID's a huge one, but you know, you're talking about hurricanes. We've seen so many of these in recent years. It ought to have signaled something. Uh, and, and for many of us, it really didn't. Yeah. And it's interesting because you mentioned, well, you couldn't have farms in New York, but uh, I moved, I just moved from Seattle. And when I first moved to Seattle about five or six years ago, I was working for Amazon and I could look outside the window and there were 15 tower cranes within a square mile of where I was, all these towers going up. It was amazing. It was just this boom town that was exploding and all those buildings are empty now. They've built up these multi-story buildings, but some people like where they've reallocated elevated train lines and turn them into parks and places like New York. Um, there've been people that have talked about, well, could you repurpose these buildings into vertical farms, right? Where you pump the water up to the top and it just kind of works its way down, you know, uh, through drainage, through the floors and that you can, with hydroponics and, and the right kind of lighting, you can grow crops in these buildings. Yeah. Yeah. Really, really clever. I've heard them talk about the possibility of that here with parking lots, even before the pandemic, but I, I didn't really see much of it happen. A lot of that stuff would tend to happen very experimentally, like pilots, but not at scale. But, you know, South Korea has been doing it for some time. Uh, Singapore has been greening the city for a long time. Now, many of those places, of course, have done it because of their vulnerable environmental situation. But I think many of us have been vulnerable without recognizing that we were vulnerable. And New York is an example of that. Yeah, that's true. I mean, we've seen, I know in California, we have had a huge disruption in our power infrastructure. So that's been a big issue for us with the forest fires and we have issues with earthquakes and all kinds of stuff. And one of the things that we're starting to explore and Tesla is, is a big part of this is what if every building provides its own power? And we just recently passed a law that all the new commercial buildings that are being built have to be enabled to provide solar power and to feed back into the grid. We're looking at doing it for residential too. But I start to wonder, just because of what I've seen in California with the failure of centralized power and distribution, if 
like you were saying, this hyper-local model where we start to have power centers being in little neighborhoods or even homes themselves and gives us more reliability, more stability, and hopefully kind of scales better, right? Absolutely, absolutely. And what's funny here is that that's been a conversation for a long time. Um, so the issue here, here's, here's you know, where human behavior sometimes, you know, we're our worst enemy. So we are in a place where using solar is obvious. You don't have to be a genius to see that we have lots of sun and we could have been doing this for a long time. Every rooftop could have been uh, uh, captured. Uh, what got in the way of it happening was two things. One, uh, the energy company, which is a state-owned enterprise, got put in charge of the project. Now, these are the people who are selling coal-fueled <laughs> electricity running the green project. So that, you know, obviously is, is a problem. But the second thing is uh, there was a policy uh, issue, which was they couldn't get the feed-in tariffs sorted out. So pe- they didn't have a way for people to feed back into the grid and get uh, remunerated for that. And there goes the incentive, right? So that kind of stalled everything. Now, what began to happen then uh, just recently, a couple of years ago, is in areas like not far from where I live in Santon, which is quite a wealthy area, a lot of the corporate buildings began doing it and some neighborhoods began doing it. But it's those who could afford to do it. So it wasn't going to be, you know, your Oaklands or your South Central LA's that were doing it. It was going to be the most affluent parts of town for whom there was a self-interest and a self-benefit that was evident to do it. So we began trying to engage with the government uh, and unfortunately it's not resolved yet to say, if you figure out that something like that makes sense, how do you make sure this, that it's inclusive, that you understand that everybody needs to be able to do this, not just the wealthiest in society? The, the interesting thing that people don't fully appreciate about alternative energy is that it's not the, the challenge really isn't generation. Uh, it's, it's actually uh, storage. Uh, yeah. yeah, because there's you can you have to use it or lose it as soon as it's generated or transmitted someplace, and so when hydroelectric dams or solar power, when they're at their most productive peak, uh, is usually when people are sleeping. They're not using energy, right? And so, like you could be you could be generating this twenty four seven just with natural means, and you you but there's no way to stockpile it. Um, you know that seems like a like a huge opportunity. I wish like some of these billionaires would spend more time on that and less time on blowing up personal spaceships uh, <laughs> because hey, it, there's yeah. power walls yeah <laughs> <laughs> on a small scale but yes, yes. well yeah. you know there's a connection hey. there a good friend of mine uh, was actually uh, part of the Mars One project a long time ago and she she really believes that the two things are connected you know she really believes that uh, a lot of her work about uh, that she would love to have the chance to do in space is very much about human settlement. So ironically, we work together. I'm talking about resilience and informal settlements in small places. She's talking about the amazing research that um, a, say a Mars project could help. And we somehow believe these things might connect. But yeah, in the, in, in the short term, the resources that it takes for what I do and what she does are completely different. <laughs> I, I need much less money. <laughs> and so uh, where do you see uh, the implementation of, of, I guess, blockchain or, or, or future technologies and how it will improve our cities and the way we interact with it? Yeah, yeah. So I've been very uh, kind of a little bit negative, actually, in the past about this, just because I think we can. I, I love tech, and uh, but I don't necessarily believe tech's going to save the world because we are really good at using really clever stuff for really dumb shit. Um, or, or in really dumb ways. Um, and so I, I don't know how we... Q-trips rocket comment. 
Yeah, L- Larry and I have worked in tech for a long time and have been a part yeah. of some of that dumb shit. So There's a lot, pretty, of, we're, a lot of dumb stuff that we built. Yeah. yeah. It's like, what was the point of this? Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, it's one of my arguments with singularity as well, actually, because there are a lot of people who um, really believe that, uh, well, I, I, and I have many arguments about, you know, one, uh, we are, we are, we're really chronically capable of reproducing the things we're trying to solve without even recognizing that we're doing it, right? Um, and I always say that uh, one of the ways to avoid that is to get out of our heads. Unfortunately, part of what is <laughs> Singularity use slogan, you know, this idea that a few people can save the billions. And I always say you can't and you won't. Uh, you'd better ask yourself what the billions are doing while you're busy trying to save them. Uh, and if I were you, I'd think about what processes you could use to use the intelligence of the billions. Uh, because they're probably a lot smarter than you think. Uh, now, now, could you do something? Yes. Could you do something really clever? Maybe. Could you do something really stupid? Easily. Um, <laughs> and so um, I just think we've got to be a little bit more humble about tech and then be a lot more responsible for what we can do. I love that because Larry and I first met, we were, we were at a conference and I was giving a talk and I was talking about design in the developing world um, and that these were emerging economies and and that they have their own solutions that are unique to that. One of my favorite examples was M-Pesa, which is uh, one of the problems in in emerging economies is people are underbanked. They don't use banks. They don't trust necessarily trust banks, but they do trust the local bodega or the local merchant or whatever. And how do I get my physical money into digital money? Uh, and it was, you walk in there, you give the money over, it gets credited, you can pull it back out, but it goes into this M-Pesa account. And they would even do things like in places like uh, Zimbabwe, when they had the hyperinflation, trading airtime for small change, like because airtime, uh, you buy all of your your airtime a la carte in, men, in many parts of the world, there's not subscriptions. So using those sorts of things. So it's it was really like, uh, it was like its own blockchain before blockchain was a real thing. Right. It was just that it was a real tangible thing. And, and trusted and it, connections. It was yeah. trusted connections. Right. Yeah. And, and so it, it, there is this cultural imperialism that happens in tech and especially in sort of places like Silicon Valley. Yeah. 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 Absolutely. And, and so, and, and so that's, so MPES is a great example. And I'm, I'm glad you know that and, and that you use that. There was also a bank called Equity Bank that used a similar model of understanding that people may not have equity. But there are people who speak up for somebody to say, no, actually, we trust this person. Uh, and that became good enough to access capital and to run your businesses. The, the, the payback rates were higher than any bank that was using formal, <laughs> you know, kind of collateral and, you know, and all of that. So I, I think, you know, that's a really good example. One I've talked about that links to blockchain um, is, is not a good example, actually, was, you know, there was a big talk here in the um, uh, real estate sector. Uh, and they were talking about, you know, how blockchain could really make a lot of the land. And they're still talking about in terms of land administration and all of this. And I said to them, you know, you guys, you're talking about how we can use blockchain to make more efficient a, a system, a real estate system that doesn't work. <laughs> you know, we've been actually trying to fix this thing for the longest time. And all you can think about is how to make it work in the same old way. Uh, and what we ought to be thinking about is, uh, you know, I, I would assume blockchain is a really good way for us to think about property and land and ownership in a very different way. And that's what would be useful for us. But instead, we're investing all of this time and having all of these conferences talking about making it more efficient. So that would be, for me, an example of something that's, that's pretty dumb. 
Um, but there's also really great stuff. I mean, I like, I'm coming out of, um, of, of California. I like the work that James uh, Eldridge is doing on AI and regen villages. You know, I think that's really cool work. I'd like to see more of that happening here. There's similar work in uh, Singapore that I've been looking at. Um, we've got a, a, I've got a friend here who's doing some great stuff in education on using uh, AI uh, and machine learning, uh, which I think is really great. Uh, so there, there's some good things. Uh, unfortunately, at scale, at least in our context, I'm yet to really see where we are addressing, I, I call it addressing the problems we have, and not addressing the problems we don't have. Uh, I'm yet to see enough of that happening. But um, so I'm, I'm kind of I'm 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 hopeful. I'm not always very positive about where whether tech's gonna save us all. <laughs> people wanna talk about crime and and, 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 and and surveillance, you know, that's what people are interested in and I don't understand why. Mm. Mm. Yeah, I was uh, I was going to like pivot into the conversation because we we talked you talked about real estate and that's something that's happening currently. Um, what were you seeing, I guess, before the pandemic on what the future of cities were looking like? And then now with all these commercial real estate buildings empty, what's ha- what's going to happen to that as uh, as well as as you, I'm sure you know, a lot of people are leaving these big cities and going back to more of their rural towns. Does that mean we're going to have little eco-settlements like you were saying earlier? Or are we going to build new cities? How, 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 is it, how can we think about what's happening in the next 5 to 10 to 15 years um, uh, as we go forward? Yeah, yeah. Well, first of all, I think, again, I, I always like to say place is very important. I don't know if the impact is going to be the same everywhere. So you know that in Africa, we've been in this process of rapid, rapid urbanization, uh, very different from the north by and large, because I think you probably got into some kind of equilibrium and you've got people moving one way or the other. Uh, here, I, I, to be honest, I just don't know. Uh, it's actually a beautiful thing. I, I, I love not knowing in some ways, but um. South Africa, for example, the rural-urban migration was still really, really intense. We're also very much a magnet for the region. So when there's problems in Zimbabwe or there's problems in, you know, wherever, in Mozambique or wherever, you know, this is where uh, everybody would come. Uh, obviously, a lot of that kind of movement uh, inter-country has really been curtailed by COVID. So, so there's not a lot of that kind of movement happening. Uh, the rural-urban movement, I think, is also, uh, I haven't seen stats recently, but I would imagine because the numbers have been so high in urban areas, I would imagine that that kind of movement also hasn't been as intense as it used to be. But again, I don't think that's a systemic or a long-term change. I, I suspect that, um, you know, COVID allowing people would continue moving just because there's a lot of issues that haven't gone away in terms of the possibility. I mean, when COVID has hit some of our rural places, I was speaking to a girlfriend of mine from the Eastern Cape, it's been really worse to be in a village than to be in a city where you can access healthcare and you can, you know, with some hope. Uh, so, like I was saying, so some of those changes I wouldn't read too much into in the sense that people are going to stop moving. I think, I think people who can still will. Um, so, so I don't know. The real estate issue, though, in big cities is real. So when you're talking about the cranes in Seattle, I was thinking about the cranes in Santa Maria. You know, they were up, man. People were building. Every corporate has a huge new headquarters uh, over here, and and they're standing empty. And uh, a lot of the talk, again, with with this stuff, you know, it's kind of you know it's happening as we speak. So one doesn't know where it goes, but uh, some of them, some of the big corporates have forced uh, essential staff back in. So we're seeing that. Uh, I have an office at the university and we're not back. So everybody's remote. So I, I don't know what's going to happen to all of these places. Um, I'm also very aware, though, that this image of the person like me who can sit in my living room and carry on as normal, unfortunately, is maybe 10% of our population. For many, many people, this isn't an option. 
uh, and it's not the kind of work they do. Uh, and so there's a very real economic crisis looming for us. So I, I don't know what's going to happen to the buildings, but I'm really worried what's going to happen to the people. And a lot of that, I mean, there's 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 a lot more money in the in North America and and in many of the places that it, at least where Larry and I grew up. But like, there's been in the news a big increase in people stealing from grocery stores now. Uh, in the United States because the food and, and disruption in the economy. But I think there's also, in this kind of change, it's it's great to be able to sit up there and see pie in the sky. But what are some good examples of country? Because I figure that there's a, there has to be a lot of intentionality to be able to get this right. It has to be an intentional effort. It doesn't just sort of like, if something just is allowed to kind of happen organically, you end up with something like Baltimore or Lagos or something, you know, like where it just sort of like cascades and it does its own thing and whatever happens, happens. But what are, what are some examples of countries or cities that have done it right and have been intentional and there's been a plan? Yeah. 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 Uh, I guess you don't mean specifically around COVID, right? Because there, I don't know no, yet. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, but I think, I think there's a, there's a longer term trend. I mean, yeah. uh, you know, people tend to hold the Scandinavian countries up, but I think there's, there's different, there's different models. Yeah. yeah. Some of them didn't do so well during COVID, by the way. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's been interesting to watch. Yeah, yeah. I was talking to a Swedish friend of mine and she was pulling her hair mm-hmm. out, but yeah. So, um, Look, I, I find the Asian ones quite interesting. And I, maybe it's a cultural thing, again, about how they do things. But um, if I look at Singapore, or even if I look, in fact, in COVID and how Japan has, where I hear, spoken about uh, COVID, this kind of, um, it's maybe like an internal internal resilience, you know, something that says, okay, well, here's what we're going to do. Uh, and, and, and to really almost... Um, um, so, okay, maybe I want to show myself here. So one of the things I always say during COVID, there's some good things that have happened. One good thing for me is I've taken to, to working out, which I didn't need to do before COVID because I was perfect. But now, <laughs> um, and so I've been learning, I've been learning about Tai Chi. Uh, and so with Tai Chi, I love this idea that you kind of work with the problem. You don't try to knock it out. Like, um, I guess a lot of our education and training teaches us to. And I think I see that sometimes in the way they plan. So the idea that, okay, there's COVID, let's assume it's going to be here and let's see how we work with that as a new reality. Let's not wait it out like many of us <laughs> do, right? I think there's a different, that's a very different mode of thinking and working. Uh, and if I look at, like I said, uh, although Singapore had in, initially, incidentally, it's, 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 um, moment where apparently there are places they didn't think about and therefore they actually did get hit initially. Uh, I, I believe in some of the immigrant buildings actually uh, with, with, with high COVID numbers. Uh, so, okay, there are always those blind spots, but by and large, I think, again, maybe because of uh, ecological vulnerability, a place that really plans into its problems as opposed to, you know, ignoring them. So I think that's always interesting. I think the way Taiwan has responded. So now I am talking about COVID um, uh, in terms of saying, okay, guys, uh, so from a civic tech perspective, that's an example I use, you know, where the digital minister says, okay, we need to do something. We don't know what to do. Let's hack it. Let's open up who has ideas. Uh, and they put out their big, you know, their data, opened that up uh, and began doing things and very quickly mobilized and, you know, experienced again, some of the smallest numbers, the fastest response, the fastest rollout of masks and all of that kind of thing, not through big government action, but through this sort of very open civic action. So so for me, those are places that I think, I guess, 
do things and plan in a very different mode from what I've seen to be dominant here and in many uh, northern countries. Uh, and so I find some encouragement in that. I worry that in contexts like Africa, uh, people like me who are trained uh, in <laughs> in planning, uh, you know, very textbook stuff in modes that probably came from, I mean, they were true somewhere, but they're certainly not true in terms of the mode of urbanization and the realities here, the kind of capital we have access to, the kinds of issues we have. You know, we have countries then that plan and ignore informality. I mean, we've got countries in Africa where 75% of the industry or economy is informal. Uh, and yet, if you were to look at the plans and bl blueprints and the economic, even the statistics, that's not there. Uh, you know, how do, who are you planning for? If you're not planning for 75% of your economy or 80% of your population in our case. And that's the kind of thing we've been doing. And it's, it's, it's incredibly difficult to get people to move from the mode that says, okay, that may be what the textbook says, but can we also deal with the reality of what we have here? Uh, and that may require us to innovate. And always reminds me of a quote from uh, Martin Luther King, at least it's credited to him, you know, that there's nothing that hurts some people more than actually having to think. <laughs> and like, you know, that, okay, there isn't an answer. And even Geshe can't tell you the answer. We're going to have to just work on it. We're going to have to figure it out. <laughs> I mean, this is a, I feel like a problem for throughout all types of industries. I mean, how many times have we in our, in our tech circles have met with startup founders who are creating a product but have never even talked to the ideal client that they're trying to sell their product to? And they've invested millions into the product and they don't even know if they have a buyer for it, you know? Or, or all their clients are their friends, yeah. right? Or people that are exactly like that. Yes. Yeah, that's true. But but I think like that out the flip side of that is is guess what I what I hear you talking about is like the influence of culture. Like when you look at some Asian countries, traditionally their cultures are more collectivist and they are more deferential to authority. So they can quickly act on a plan and execute and everybody kind of gets in line, right? Um, you know, in in Africa, I think what you express is like somebody being willing to vouch for somebody uh, in terms of their their creditworthiness. Um you know, you try to go in and you say, well, no, there, there can be no conflicts of interest, I, you know, but it's like, yeah, but my brother's cousin's wife does this. And so she should come work for us. And it's sort of a package deal. That's just the way that that, that culture and that economy, it's informal. That's how it works. In COVID, you know, what, what's made America so innovative is that you can't tell me what to do. I'm going to go, <laughs> I'm going to go and build my own company. Well, that kind of backfires yeah. when it's like, it you can't, you're not the yeah. boss of me. I can, I'm not going to wear a mask. Right. Yeah. So there's, there's, yeah. there's that a independent streak did not yeah. work well for us. That's true. Yeah, that's true. So it's, it's like what the, they say sometimes in business is that uh, culture eats strategy for breakfast. Right, right, right. And it's not always easy to know how to work into your culture. So there's a lot of uh, talk now about Ubuntu economics and Ubuntu. I don't know if you know about Ubuntu. It's this sort of um, uh, African yeah, Linux. philosophy. Yeah, no, I'd say it's, it's, yes, it is the nerds in us who are like, oh yeah, that's Linux. Linux. Yeah, but it's, it's like, that. No, it's, there's it's, an actual it's word, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's what you're thinking. Oh, I see. Yeah. What are you talking about? No, okay, okay, yes. I've seen Ubuntu used. I've seen the logo. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, so, so this kind of this um, uh, philosophy about, and, mo and many African cultures have it, Ubuntu is kind of the Southern African version of it, which is, you know, I am because we are. So it's, it's very much this collectivism. Uh, and I, I think we have to think about in sort of modern times what that really means. Um, and, to, and some people have began to try and express it as a leadership value, as you know, what it means as an economic structure and that. But yeah, you've got to sometimes 
Um, and, and, and I think that's great. You know, you know, the kind of, you know, American cowboy thing, you know, uh, look, it's, it's done a lot of amazing things, right? I mean, so as you say, maybe it's not great for COVID. It's been great for some other things. You know, you've got the most innovative, well, you know, everybody wants to be America in some ways. Somebody got their own. Yeah. Some, some people got their own spaceships out of it. So right. you know, it seems to couple, work. Couple of people, right? Yeah. So it does work for some things. And, and, I, and I, I guess I think, you know, the idealist part of me would say, but, you know, isn't that beautiful? So if you've got Asians who can sort of get us going deep, you've got Africans who can get us together, you've got Americans who can get us innovating. I, I mean, it sounds like a great mix. It doesn't always mix very well, though. But, um, but you know, I, I think that's what's great. Uh, I love talking about diversity, even when it comes to cities, you know, so part of what I've been very against is the monocropping of cities. I think cities, you know, New York looks like it does, or Tokyo looks like it does, or freaking Dubai looks like it does, you know, for various reasons. And um, I really worry when through representation or through acts of capital, uh, every city behaves like it has to be like another city that it's seen. Um, and I think that's where we really get it wrong because that's where you lose the opportunity to respond to your context and perhaps right. to do something that would be an amazing contribution to this world that would be so unique that, you know, Trip would really want to come to South Africa because it won't look like, you know, I don't know, something else. I think they'd stop me at the border, especially if I brought my kids because it's just like, you know. <laughs> <laughs> no. uh, I, your point is spot on, though. It's like I've done a lot of travel and I can't tell you when I feel more sad is when I get off the plane, I'm like, this looks just like home. <laughs> and I was like, this isn't a new experience at all. It looks just like home. I, I, I remember I went to Canada and I was where Trip and I met and I said, this looks like Nebraska. This is where I grew up. This isn't exciting whatsoever. <laughs> <laughs> That's very sad. You know, the yeah. one that used to get me, Larry, was airports. Um, so I actually say I don't miss yeah. traveling and I realized it's not so much the traveling in the sense of where I was going or the time in the plane. It was airports. I find them so depressing because they're exact representation of every place being yes. the same. <laughs> yeah. Speaking of airports, my wife and I made a trip to Ikea. Uh, over the, and it was like, this is like the worst version of a European vacation ever. I can't read anything. Can't find anything. Nobody's Did you helpful. have meatballs at least? And I just stand in lines. No, you can't even have the meatballs because they're all oh, shut down. And no all whatsoever. the stuff looks exactly the same. It does. Right? Yeah, so it it's, does. It's, it's very comforting, but also kind of bland. Um, I, you know, I, you, you, you come from a design background, uh, you know, architecture and urban planning. Larry and I come from design backgrounds and, and Anna's a creative as well. But I always find like the biggest impediment, regardless of the culture, um, to innovation or to real change is a lack of curiosity, a lack of actually questioning, well, what, what, why is this so good? Or asking some fundamental questions like in your work, where do you encounter that kind of resistance? Yeah. Yeah. So it's, I'm really glad you asked actually, because one of the projects that I've been doing um, using, uh, I don't know if you know about causal layered analysis looks very much like theory U. So this idea that you have to get down to the level of essentially of imagination of, of, of the myth, the metaphor, what's the image that informs what you think is you know possible or can be shifted. Right. Um, and based on that, began a project that was looking at the question of representation. Uh, and I was saying that architects, it, when it comes to physical space in cities, architects and planners and urban designers ha have this amazing power through representation to indicate what's possible, right? 
Uh, and, uh, and I think that's a huge responsibility that we don't take responsibility for that. I think to the extent people have a very limited lexicon of what they imagine a city could look like, it's because we've represented things <laughs> in this very limited way. And, you know, I've, I've gone to some of these real estate things where, uh, again, you get this uh, very globalized, uh, uh, kind of monocropping of ideas, you know, you get, and it'll be like a Russian developer and a European developer and, an, you know, an American and then, and then some Africans and all of them are selling very similar ideas, often about a new city because that's where you make real money. And that's the thing, again, when it's, it's driven by capital, it's not driven really by the idea that, you know, that we're creating something new and interesting. Um, so representation becomes important, but then imagination plays into that as well, exactly as you say, the creativity. Uh, and I've really been saying that we've really got to decolonize that space because otherwise, and, and I use that word purposefully knowing that it triggers people. Uh, I say we're colonizing the future. We are getting people to believe that future can only be one of these four things. And, um, and, and I think it's the biggest lie and it's the biggest disservice. Um, just because I've, I've come to realize that I think people, you know, society, informal people, you know, they create their own homes every day. So people are innovative. People do stuff. Obviously, uh, I guess there are only so many ways you can think about how to create a unit, um, and, and, and space. And, and, and again, not everybody is uh, visually and spatially literate if you want to try and imagine how that might be configured differently. So it often be driven by need, you know, so, and that's okay. It's, it's a functional design, but there's so many of us who are trained and the people in society who are artistic and are, and, and can do beautiful things. And I think if we can get people to be freed from the idea that cities can only look in certain, we can only look, you know, in certain ways, I, I think we would really unleash a super interesting much wider lexicon. I'm working on a book that's even looking at the language that we use for space. Uh, the fact that we don't grow that language, we don't allow it to grow. Uh, and and I mean, like, um, architects are incredibly egotistical and, and you know, we really love to <laughs> control space. We, we pull a lot of architects into my area of product and UX design. Uh, so yes, I'm familiar with the, that archetype. Uh, the, 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 but I think the the interesting thing too that I, when we talk about design, uh, whether it's designing a building or a space or a product, is that people think of it. It's like painting, which is an additive function. It's like and and and, but it's actually it's more like sculpture, where you're looking at what's the essential thing and what do I remove? What what's the noise? What 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 is the negative space? Like how do I take pieces out of that? And I think there's there's something to be said about that. Is like you have to get down to the essentials. You really have to be curious about why did this thing become the why is this the right way right now, and does that continue to be true into the future? So, if there was one thing uh, that you could like wave a wand and change right now, like just one thing for the that could you could just systematically change. For the next 10 years, what would it be? Huh, so this is global or this is just in my little realm of <laughs> This is carte blanche. I'm the genie, but I only give you one shot. <laughs> you know, you know, I think what I would unleash, and I say unleash because it would probably look like that, is 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 really experimentation. I'd say, guys, let's admit that actually the center does not know what to do, uh, and let's encourage everybody to try something that they think really could work. Uh, but when I say everybody, I don't really mean every individual, every atom. Uh, uh, hopefully it's groups of you know, it's communities. But, but try what you think would work better. And then we'll have a look and see what's really worth taking up. And, and that would be maybe a good way to go. Uh, so I would really decentralize 
the possibility of, of innovating. That's cool. I like that. Okay. I think we should wrap up on that. That's perfect. <laughs> yes, I love that. <laughs> well, where can they uh, find more about you, Geshi? Oh, Lord. I, I think I'm everywhere, unfortunately. Um, <laughs> I'm really good on LinkedIn, though. So if you look me up on LinkedIn, that's probably where I, I go most regularly. If you need me, you'll find me, I'm sure. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. And we'll, we'll, we'll probably include some, uh, if you're dyslexic like I am and you're listening to this, there's no way in hell I'd be able to spell your name just hearing it. So we'll make sure that we link it in the notes. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, guys. Well, this thank was you great. for your time today. Yeah. yeah. Appreciate yeah. it. a pleasure to hear about this. This, yeah. is, this is such a new topic for us. We don't usually get into such cool stuff. So that's kind of fun. I'm sure you do, but thank you. <laughs> And yeah. please do send the one. They'll be waiting. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, and and if they want to find out more about Gashi and they want to find out more about us, where 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 can they find us? We can go to, or you can go to, thebraveworkforce.com and you can send me an email at Anna at thebraveworkforce.com. I look forward to hearing any questions you might have from this podcast episode. And if you like what you heard today, uh, definitely email Anna. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, you know, like we want to, we want to be looking, I mean, I think one of the great things about having someone like Geshe on is that I think everybody's tired of the doom and gloom and we want to talk about the positive things that could be ahead, the possibilities. Uh, and so until then, and in 2021 and going forward, keep putting one foot in front of the other, better days are ahead. Mm-hmm.